tonight. We're going to talk about singleness tonight. Singleness. As somebody who was single, how long, honey? 32 years? Right? 33 when we got married, yeah. Well, we started dating when I was 32, so then I, I wasn't really fully single then. But when, um, as somebody who was single in the church for a long time, longer than any of you, okay, even though you may think that, you know, you're single and you're very aware of that if you are single, um, and somebody who, like I said last week, was the only single pastor on the staff of a big church where the pastor regularly would say things from the pulpit like pray for Kevin to get a wife, um, I just know that the church often can be really brutal without meaning to in the way it deals with the issue of singleness. It actually is a really difficult thing to be able to say very strongly that marriage is a wonderful thing and a blessing from the Lord and a wonderful and a good thing. And, you know, like the Bible says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing, right? And at the same time, be able to lift up singleness and say, this is a wonderful calling, and a valid and an important calling for the sake of the kingdom. It's hard to say both of those things. The church tends to, throughout the centuries, fall off of that, that, uh, that railing on one side or the other. I mean, you know, so there are whole denominations that you know that would say that if you want to actually serve God as a vocational minister, full-time, men or women, that you really can't be married, right? That's a, that's a huge part of the Christian church that has that view, and then there, you know, probably in the evangelical church, the, the tendency is to basically think that the church is just about families and family values. And singles wonder where they fit in that. And they feel like second-class citizens. Um, you know, actually, our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, RUF, certainly most of the people that, that come to RUF uh, are not from that background, but, you know, this, actually, RUF is rooted in a particular tradition, um, but, it, you know, our denomination, of which I'm an ordained minister in that denomination, we're going to have kind of our national, we do a yearly national meeting, and we're going to have that meeting here in Nashville in 2010 in the summer. I hope if you're here, you'll come. And um, we were talking today about what should the theme be for, uh, for it, and one of the guys, dear brother, um, suggested it should really be about the family of God. I was like, yeah. But I know what church he goes to, and I know it's all about families. They don't hardly have any singles there. And I thought, I wonder how that would feel to, like, the three PCA churches I know that are mostly singles. How do they enter into that without feeling like I need to be in a family or, you know, defined, you know, of course, very, you know, rigidly. Well, I need to be in this family to actually be a worthwhile part of the kingdom of God. So what we're going to try and do tonight is actually difficult to do because I want to talk boldly about the calling to singleness and how it is a good thing, yet I also want to talk next week about how marriage is a good thing. And I think you may seem, well, that seems kind of, kind of strange, like, you're, which is it? Which should I do? And really the answer, um, as we're going to look in this passage tonight, revolves around God's kingdom, God's calling, God's gifting, Right? So let's look at this passage, really the classic passage that talks about um, singleness and life as a single person. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now there's a lot of stuff in 1 Corinthians 7 that we're not going to necessarily look at. So I'm actually going to skip some of the verses. They may be the verses that have always plagued you and made you wonder about things. Um, I'm sorry. 
Uh, I actually preached through 1 Corinthians a few years ago. It's a difficult book to preach through because every chapter, um, not only is there kind of the main point, but it seems like you're always having to solve all of these debates and problems that people have had with trying to figure out what Paul's talking about. Really, the section that we're looking at here, it, Paul says right here from the, in the beginning in verse 1, Now for the matters you wrote about. The problem is we don't have the letter that the Corinthians wrote to Paul. So we're getting one kind of one side of the telephone conversation, like when you're little and you listen to your mom and try to figure out what it is she's talking about and, you know, not really understand what's going on, even though you thought you might understand. It's difficult sometimes to understand exactly what Paul's talking about here because he's responding to particular questions. It all, the other thing that that means about 1 Corinthians 7 is he's responding to a whole bunch of questions, like a whole list of questions, not all of which are the questions that we're asking tonight. We're not asking questions about divorce and remarriage. We're not asking questions about if you're engaged to somebody and then one of you gets converted, what should you do? Um, Those are all good questions, and Paul talks about lots of those things. Uh, I want you to know, I don't usually like to skip verses. I really think it's actually important that we read the Bible in its context um, so that we're actually having to sit under it rather than sort of just using it for our own agenda. But the reason I'm not going to do that exactly tonight is because I would raise so many questions in your head that we'd never get to talk about singleness. All right, get coffee with me. We can talk about some of those other verses that we're going to skip over if you want. Here's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now for the matters you wrote about, verse 1, it is good for a man not to marry. Seems to settle it, doesn't it? (laughs) But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Jump down to verse 7. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Jump down to verse 17. And here he begins to kind of talk about one of the principles that's guiding his particular pieces of advice here. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? Now, Paul's not really that concerned with like a practice that in our culture is just about hygiene or about tradition. In his culture, that meant, were you Jewish? And did you have the marks of being Jewish? And there were some Christians in the early days of the church that thought that if you had grown up as a Gentile who wasn't circumcised as an infant, that when you became a Christian, you should also become Jewish culturally. That's what he's talking about, okay? Um, Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised, like, you know, that was possible. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. And then he goes on and he applies that to slavery, which opens a lot of can of worms we're not going to talk about tonight. Um, Jump down to verse 23, even though he's still talking about the slavery issue, he picks up on a principle here that's important for our talk tonight as well. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. 
Now about virgins. <laughs> I have no command. No, it's funny, you know, when you're uh, taking an introduction to Greek in seminary, like virgins is one of the words you first learn how to do in Greek. So all like the little practice sentences are always about virgins and wine. <laughs> it's hilarious. Um, <laughs> now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because, now what he means is not... You know, I've ceased to speak as an apostle here, but I don't actually have the, 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 the exact words of Jesus on this particular question. I don't, have, I don't have words of Jesus on this question is what he's saying. Um, I have no command from the Lord. In the early church, whenever they say the Lord in the New Testament, they mean Jesus. Um, because of the present crisis, he says in verse 26, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. And we need to pray before we talk about this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would help us not only just to understand what Paul's talking about here, what you're talking to us about here, but Lord, help us to understand how this applies to our life, to the station in life that we might find ourselves in even tonight. We pray for your wisdom. We pray for your grace. We pray for your spirit to open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your law. All for Jesus' sake and for his kingdom. Amen. So, you know, here's, here's the thing. What Paul says in verse 17, and we're going to jump around a little bit. Um, Paul says, nevertheless, each one should remain, retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and which God has called him. Like he said in those last verses that I read, if you're married... You don't need to get divorced. Um, he's not talking about, uh, the, there's other passages in the Bible that talk about when it's a, a divorce is allowable and all that. I'm not talking about that. What he's saying is, just because you're a Christian does not mean that you need to either get married or not get married. He actually, what's interesting about this passage is some of his advice here is tempered by this present crisis that he's talking about. We're not really sure what that is. He says, but because of the present crisis. So when you read this passage, sometimes people pull verses out of 1 Corinthians 7, like this is the ongoing advice for every point in time and every person in every situation. We have to be careful about that. But I think in verse 17, we do get a universal principle and a practice. It's what he says at the end. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Now, how you apply that um, requires wisdom. But here's the basic principle. God has called you in a particular place, and generally he wants to use you in that place. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't, you know, seek to go to college and get a better job or, you know, all those sorts of things. I mean, you can take this to the point of ridiculousness, but you should at least ponder what, what you were, where you were when God called you. What, what this is basically saying, and what I think is important for you at this stage in life, whether you're married or single, is to think that there are particular challenges and particular opportunities that you have wherever you are. Uh, like we sing in that hymn sometimes, the hymn, Jesus, I, my cross have taken. Joy to find in every station 
something still to do or bear. There's something for you to do in whatever station of life you're in. And there's something for you to bear. I don't know if we think about it that much, that we could actually glorify God by bearing something for him. So here's the thing. You see, I think we live in a world that very much is fueled by discontent. Uh, This is, you know, advertising is all about this. Your life is incomplete unless you have this. This is the whole basis for the consumer culture that we live in. You know, you know, don't ever be content with anything you have. And Paul comes and speaks actually a pretty radical message to that. He says, listen, God can use you right where he has you. Right where he has you. And you should ponder that and think about that. One of the things that that means is that you can glorify God in your singleness or in your marriage. That's why what Paul says here is really pretty radical. What's pretty fascinating, you know, in our day and age... It it almost seems like you're strange if you get married before you're 25. In Paul's day, what would have been really strange is to think that you could actually be single. Everybody got married, really. And and to think that you could actually be single with and still actually have a high view of marriage. See, this is the thing. Christianity doesn't fit into any of the boxes that people in the first century would have tried to put it in. It's life affirming. Marriage is a good thing. As a matter of fact, in one of his other letters, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 that it is a doctrine of demons to forbid people to marry. So you may say, well, what is he doing in verse 1? He says it's good for a man not to marry. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But Christianity comes into the world saying marriage is a good thing. Paul also says in 1 Timothy 4, it's a doctrine of demons to teach people or to forbid people to marry and to teach them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving because they are consecrated by the word of God and prayer. And he goes on and he says to Timothy, he's writing this letter to Timothy, who's kind of like his kind of junior assistant. Um, He says, if you point this out to the brothers, Timothy, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. So Christianity is radically life-affirming. Sex is a good thing. Marriage is a good thing. But Christianity also says that there is a crisis. The time is short. This kingdom of God is moving forward, and it's vital work. And therefore, there can be very good reasons for being single as well. This is what he's saying, that the kingdom is the perspective through which you have to view everything. Now, Jesus had said this, right? Jesus said um, that you were to seek first the kingdom, that you're not to worry. What will you wear? What will you eat? Right? And Jesus says, the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. I always love that. He doesn't just say, hey, don't be like a pagan. I know a lot of churches that that's basically what they could put on their billboard every, every week. <laughs> Don't be a pagan. Don't be like the pagans, right? But what Jesus says, what it means to live like a pagan is to run after what are you going to wear, what are you going to eat, which I find a lot of Christians are pretty concerned about their material possessions and having uh, life's comforts and making sure that they've got those protected. Um, so I don't know. That's maybe it'd be worth pondering another time. But he doesn't just say, don't be a pagan. Don't live like the pagans. He says, your heavenly Father knows you need them. 
Whenever you think about these issues, there are a couple of these kind of Christian ideas that need to be brought to bear on thinking about singleness and marriage. One is your heavenly Father cares for you. And the kingdom of God matters. And it's a vital thing to give yourself to and to give your life to. Now, I actually suspect, and most scholars would say this, that Paul almost certainly was married. He talks in Philippians 3 about how he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Or maybe it's not Philippians 3, maybe it's in Acts. But Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. We know from Jewish sources that he couldn't have been a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin unless he was married. So the question is always, well, what happened? He's single now. Did his wife die, perhaps? Did she abandon him when he became a Christian? We don't know. But Paul, in thinking about that, thinks about the kingdom. There's a benefit to the kingdom in me being single. But it's no shame if your calling is marriage. In fact, it's a doctrine of demons to teach people that it's a bad thing. Or to even teach them that it's more holy to be single. He doesn't say that. Now, here's how do you understand the beginning here, Kevin? Well, verse 1. Here's what I think is the best way to understand this. If you just take this as Paul just saying this out of the blue, okay? Um, what's he responding to in verse 1? What's he responding? Did they ask him, Paul, is it good for a man not to marry? Maybe. We don't know. Right? He's responding to something was written. But here's, I think, the best way to understand it. Now, what you need to understand is, in the Greek text, there is no punctuation. In the Greek text, the Bible, there is no punctuation. The punctuation is the best judgment of biblical scholars. All right? I think that this passage, and I'm not alone in thinking this. Uh, Anthony Thistleton makes a great case for this in his very technical commentary on 1 Corinthians. You can read it if you want. Um, He argues that this, it is good for a man not to marry, should be in quotes. That what they wrote about was about a slogan that was popular in Corinth. That basically they're going around saying, it's good for a man not to marry. You remember, Paul feels a need to respond to that very idea in 1 Timothy 4, where he says it's a doctrine of demons to teach, to forbid people to marry. So we know what he thinks about forbidding marriage. The Corinthians maybe aren't doing that, but they are saying, well, it really is better not to be married. And so he basically says, now for the matters you wrote about, comma, quotations, it's good for a man not to marry. What does Paul think about that slogan? And here's what's interesting. He says, well, yes and no. Yes, because of the sake of the kingdom. Yes, because some people are gifted for it, like me. Yes, because the time is short. And yes, because of the present state of crisis. And yes, because of this principle that God wants to use you where you are and you shouldn't just feel like I have to change everything about my life to be used by God. Do you know how often that happens to Christians when they become Christians, especially in junior high and high school? Did you ever go through that? You've become a Christian and then your youth group leader tells you you need to break off all your friendships with everybody that you used to know. You need to burn all your records. You need to quit reading all those books. Right? That Christians say that kind of stuff all the time. 
And what Paul is saying is, no, actually the the biblical principle here is God in his providence has put you in a particular place. As a matter of fact, Paul mentions this in one of his sermons in Acts. He says that God has basically assigned the boundaries where men live. That God has sovereign care and rule over people. That where you are in your life is not just an accident. It didn't just happen. God was involved in that. All right? And therefore, you should consider what God might have me to do in this situation. So, Paul's given all these reasons why it's, he would say, yeah, it's good not to marry. But then, he goes on and says, yeah, but listen, it's not sin if you get married. It's good to get married. Right? God created man and said it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helpmate for him. Right? We're going to talk about this more next week. So, do you understand what Paul's saying here? It's good for a man not to marry, to which he says... Well, yeah and no. Yes and no. Now that, you know, that really bothers a lot of people because they just want to read the Bible and have it tell them, well, what should I do? Should I get married or should I not get married? And I don't think you're going to find a verse in the Bible that will answer that question for you. But you know what? For most of you, it's not really up to you. And that's like one of the difficulties about this situation. See, here's the thing you've got to understand about singleness. For, for many of us, and for, certainly for me, for quite a long time in my life, it was my calling. It was where God had me. And rather than just thinking about, oh, if only I could be married, then I could really be pleasing to God, or then I could really you know, be fulfilled enough where I could actually love people, or then I could really use my gifts on God's behalf. No, that was my calling. My my place at that point was not to just moan about what wasn't the case. My place was to seek what is there here for me to do? What is there here for me to bear? There are particular benefits to the kingdom in me being single. But there's also benefits for me being married. Let me give you an example. See, this is what's interesting to me is I've been doing college ministry a long time. I began doing college ministry as a college student. And it was, you know, there were things that I could do as a college student, people that I was friends with that I could interact with on a day-to-day basis. I've never been able to do ministry in that same way since. My senior year at Berkeley College of Music, me and a couple of my friends started the Christian Fellowship at Berkeley. And it was an amazing time of, you know, being able to talk to people all the time. Uh, I, I had a job at the recording studios there where I worked most nights, six at night till four in the morning. Uh, the recording studios at Berkeley are in the basement of really the big main building. All the dorms are upstairs, and then there's practice rooms and all that kind of stuff, and ensemble rooms where people can gather and play together. And then there's the studios. In other words, it's the place where people just kind of hang out. And I know maybe people do that at Belmont too, but you still have other buildings and dorms that are scattered. Everything's in one building, right? Except for like a little dorm that's over here and a little classroom building that was over here that wasn't open at night, Okay. So it's like the place. And I basically am sitting in this office, able to talk with people about the gospel and about all the issues of life from six at night to four in the morning. It was awesome, right? I've never had that kind of opportunity, okay? I've never been able to be in that kind of setting since then. But I didn't really know what I was talking about half the time, (laughs) you know. Um, But still, it was great. It was a benefit of being single. Now, I come here to Nashville, I work at a recording studio for a couple of years, and then um, I'm at this church, and they want to start a college Sunday school class 
And, you know, I'm like, well, you know, I was kind of doing that sort of thing up in Boston. I'll help out. So, you know, I started doing this ministry then as a single person, okay? And then I basically, you know, was a musician, which meant that I was completely flexible. Some days I didn't have anything to do. Um, so I was able to kind of be in students' lives in a certain way. And I was younger. I was, you know, actually, what's funny, this is the funny thing about, you know, Belmont and the Christian music industry. The first time I ever walked on campus at Belmont University to try and officially do ministry, some kid walked up to me and wanted my autograph. I probably have only had that happen in my life like twice. And one of the times, it was the first time I walked on campus, and I was with the guy who the church had just hired as the college pastor. And he was like, you know, what's the deal? You know, I've been like coming on campus for like months, and people just like kind of go the other way when they see me coming. And you, you know, anyway, it doesn't happen anymore, right? Now I feel like a complete dweeb if I walk in the cafeteria, all right? So, you know, here's, here's the thing. There, there were different, different status. When I graduated seminary, when I was in seminary, I was single. Now, one of the bad things about that is Wendy and I didn't get to process a lot of those things together. But one of the good things is uh, I could spend a lot of time in the library reading books that other people couldn't read, you know, because they had a wife and they had kids and they had responsibilities and whatnot. Not saying that I wasn't miserably lonely in seminary and didn't want to be married, but I wasn't. So I didn't just mope about it. I said, well, I've got time. I can read. I can go serve and play guitar at Young Life. All these different things, right? Uh, when I came here... Uh, I first was a single pastor. I told you about that and all the grief that I used to take. But I was able to hang out late at night on campus with students. I could go, you know, sit at Bongo Java for two hours after RUF, right? As I got married, see, ch things change. And you might say, well, gosh, you know, what did you gain? Seems like you just gave up spending time with us. Here's what I gained. <laughs> well, I gained lots of things. But particularly about ministry, here's what I gained. I gained the opportunity to actually welcome people into our home. Paul in 1 Thessalonians says that we, because we loved you, we de were delighted to share not our lives and the gospel with you. Not just the gospel, but our lives with you. And, and, and I, if I hadn't married Wendy, I wouldn't know how to do that. I'm still not very good at it, but I, you know, kind of tag onto her coattails and she helps me. But I, I also get the opportunity for you all to be in our house, in our family, around our kids. To at a time in our culture when everybody's confused and discouraged and depressed about the institution of marriage, to be able to say, Jesus makes a difference. Right? And I can tell you that, but it's quite another thing to try to model that. Okay? So, you know, while it may, you know, here's the thing, interesting thing. Which is better, for me to be able to hang out with you or for me to say, you know what, I need to go home and hang out with the wife and kids? And you may think, well, I really wish he could be here and answer all my Bible questions, but probably what will stick with you 10 years from now is the fact that, you know, Kevin said no to hanging out with us, said no at times to being able to be the answer man and spend time feeling good doing ministry so he could spend time with his wife and kids. Wow. I hope that that will at least give you pause when you have questions come up in your life about how am I spending my time, right? We have to help each other to fight against the squeeze and the pressure to sacrifice everything on the altar of success, right? I'm not saying that I'm doing it well um, by any means, but I'm saying there's a benefit to that, right? So that's, I plead with you to think about and to ponder and to ask God, where am I and what can God do to, that can help me? All right? Now, does the Bible teach singleness is a good thing? Sure. Jesus was single. Duh. Paul is single. Right? Um, 
the church has to, at the same time, lift up the calling of marriage and lift up the calling of singleness as glorious ways to advance the kingdom. And um, it's just vital. It's difficult, but it's vital. And a lot of times, well-meaning married folks will really say hurtful things. They don't mean it. They really mean well, but they're going to say hurtful things if you're going to be in the church and you're going to be a single person. But they need you around. They really do. Not just so you can serve in the nursery. Not just so you can be sort of, you know, the free labor for the kingdom. And yet, you actually may have more time than they do to be able to step up and serve in some ways that married people can't. All right? So do you you understand? Now, I think this kind of you know, idea about God's purpose and, and finding your purpose and where he has you is, is really important. But you know what else is really interesting in this passage? And this, the end of this passage is weird, isn't it? Um, what is all this? And look at verse 29. What I mean, brothers, and this is sort of his way. I always love, like, sometimes in Paul, like, he uses an illustration to clarify, and it just seems to, like, make it more confusing. <laughs> you ever found that? L- listen, that's not unspiritual or unchristian to think that. Did you know that? Um, 2 Peter 3.16. Peter says that what Paul writes in his letters sometimes is difficult to understand. Do you know that? I love that. The one of the apostles, the apostle Peter, said that Paul's letters sometimes are difficult to understand. So if you find it difficult to understand, doesn't mean you're, you're uh, not spiritual. Uh, this is difficult to understand. But what I think is underlying his way of thinking here is that kind of the situation or the things that would seek to define you and become the all-encompassing realities, what Paul's saying is because of the kingdom, they're not. Because of the kingdom, your marriage is not the ultimate thing in your life. That's what he's saying. I think this is a way of Paul saying, seek first the kingdom. At the same time, you know, that you, the, you say these other things are good. Seek first the kingdom, right? So he says, those who have wives should live as if they had none. I think it's, you know, hyperbole in a way. But what he's saying is having a wife is not the sole definition of who you are and what you do with your time and how you live. Um, those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. In other words, I'm happy. And I'm just going to be happy. No, Paul, you remember, says that we are to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. That the kingdom and care for other people is more important than your own internal emotional barometer in determining how you live. See, this is radical kingdom theology. I mean, the way I would put it in talking about this issue about singleness is, does God have the right for the kingdom's sake to tell you you need to get married? Does God have the right for the kingdom's sake, to tell you not to get married? That's an that's a important question for you to ponder. Without me being able to tell you which he's calling you to do. But you have to wrestle with the authority question and the, the priority of the kingdom kind of question. All right, I know I'm kind of all over the place on this outline if you're trying to follow that. <laughs> Forget it. Listen, let's say a couple more things about, um, about 1 Corinthians 7, 7, uh, 7 here. Look at verse 17. Um, each should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him. Um, that word assigned makes it seem um, almost like bureaucratic, sort of red tape, you know, oh, you go here. 
I, I really think the concept here is God has gifted you and giving you a particular place as a gift. In other words, uh, and, and I think some, actually some of the other translations even, even talk it that way. What Paul is saying here is that singleness is a gift. It's something that he's put you in. And, and I think that why that's important is that when you're thinking about your life as a single, it means that if, if you're gifted for it, you'll enjoy it. I mean, Paul says, I wish everybody was like me. He doesn't seem to be bummed out or discouraged by it. Somebody wrote a book based on this passage. Uh, it was titled this, Singleness, the Gift Nobody Wants. <laughs> that really misses the point of what Paul's saying, okay? That's missing the point of what Paul's saying. If it's a gift, you'll understand it as a good thing, or at least you should. Um, but notice, you know, Paul is also not boasting about his singleness. He says, I wish that people were like me. He doesn't command that people be like him. He, he, he tries to lift it up as a good thing, but he doesn't command it. it it's, he doesn't boast about it because it's a gift. It's not an achievement. He's not saying, because I'm more spiritual than you, then I can be single. He doesn't say that, actually. Um, you know, and I think you know, the, the danger is, of course, thinking, okay, well, how do I know if I have the gift? I think that, that, honestly, you will have a low need of romantic relationships. The danger in me saying that is there can be a lot of reasons why you don't think you have a need of romantic relationships. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. So how do you know if you're called to be single? First, it's a gift. Um, Second thing to remember is the gift may not be permanent. So you need to distinguish between how do you know you have the permanent gift of singleness? I'm not sure that you really can conclude that. I certainly don't think you conclude that at this point in your life. And uh, I, I really am not sure that you could conclude that definitively for the rest of your life at any point. I think in some ways it would be like making a false vow that you probably shouldn't make. Okay? But then you probably can understand where I come down on the church tradition that encourages young people to make those kinds of vows. Uh, I'm just not sure that biblically that's justifiable. Um, So I think some people may have this gift for a season. They may have this calling for a season. And again, Paul most likely and almost certainly was married for a season, but now he's single for a season. I was single for a season, but now I'm married, right? So did I have the gift of singleness? I don't know, for a season. At least I had the temporary gift of singleness, and I certainly had God's providence calling me to be single and to seek how to glorify him in that. Turn the page over. Um, Before you decide that you have the gift of singleness, a couple things that might help you examine your heart. First, you may think that you're content being single because you really have an independence idol. You really may at one point really long to be intimate and have relationships with people, but if the chips are down, if it push comes to shove, what you really are committed to is getting your own way and being free. There's a great John Hyatt song. I'm going to use this, and I probably will get in trouble. I might have to edit it out, but I'm going to use it at least for your benefit. John Hyatt, he's one of my favorite songwriters. Um, He's got this, this song, Ethylene. It's an unbelievable song. You know this song? He has this, he has this, uh, this line in the song where he goes, um, some men, uh, no, so, some, uh, is it some men will drive all night just to take a peek at the great abyss. Some men avoid love like it was the plague or something so they can leave the seat down when they piss. 
I love that image. If you're a guy, you know exactly about that image. Why should I have to lift the seat? It's my house. I can do what I want, right? That's the independence idol, right? And the, the kind of the ridiculousness of the song is what you're trading for that supposed freedom, you know? And, and, and there's something about sort of that earthy image that helps you see, oh, really? That's, that's what's important? That's what, I'm, that's what I'm committed to? Wow, that's kind of scary, right? But this is true. The independence idol says life only has meaning if I have freedom to do what I want when I want. If I have freedom to spend my money the way I want to spend it. If I have freedom to decorate the way I want to do it. If I have freedom to sort of set up my house just the way I want to do it. We all have that idol to some, some degree. But for some people, you know, they really are more um, trying to find their life by being dependent, interdependent with someone. And others tend to want to find their life by their freedom and not being dependent upon somebody. So you may think that you have the gift of singleness when what really is going on is your independence idol is sort of drowning out any other longings that you have. Because when you have an idol in your life, it lies to you. It lies to you. Um, Tim Keller says that idols create delusional fields. Once you begin to believe that life only has meaning if I have freedom to do what I want, then you begin to believe all these other lies that cluster around it. Like, you know, oh, this person asked me to help them. Uh, I don't know. If, if I do it, then they, they may ask me again, and then they may, like, inconvenience me. You know, you, all these kinds of lies just start clustering around your idols. So that could be one reason. The other reason you may think that you're content to be single when maybe you don't really have the gift of singleness is because of deep pain and hurt. And, and this would certainly be part of my story. Uh, you may have just killed your hope and your desires because you can't stand to live with unfulfilled longings and you can't stand to feel things after what you've been through. And I think perfectionism plays into this as well. It's very hard to be committed to being a perfectionist at the same time that you're um, trying to pursue a relationship. Next, you may really be just deeply selfish and irresponsible <laughs> and not want to repent, right? And certainly, you know, if you ever watched Merchants of Cool, um, if you haven't, you should watch it. It's on pbs.org. Look up Frontline um, documentary, The Merchants of Cool. And he talk, they talk in there about the MTV creation of the MOOC, which is sort of the stereotype you know, it's the Tom Green character, sort of. It's, it's, you know, the jackass guys. It's, you know, sort of this, you know, what it means to be a man is to be perpetually irresponsible. And don't think that that hasn't affected y'all, right? And um, so to Paige Benton, my friend Paige Benton, in her little article on Signalist, puts it well. She says, singleness can be a mere euphemism for self-absorption. Now is you time. No wife to support, no husband to pamper. Well, then by all means, join three different golf courses, get a weekly pedicure, raise emus, subscribe to people. Singleness, she says, is never carte blanche for selfishness. A spouse is not a sufficient countermeasure for self. The gospel is the only antidote for egocentricity. Christ did not simply come to save us from our sins. He came to save us from ourselves. And he most often rescues us from us through relationships, all kinds of relationships. But some are actually single for the cost of the kingdom. And I, I don't know, probably less in our culture, but there are people the world over who are asked to marry people that God says they're not allowed to marry. Maybe people who are not Christians and they're uh, asked for the sake of, you know, arranged marriages or whatnot. There are all kinds of people. Or maybe you're in a situation where 
there are really not a min, very many Christians around. And by you saying that I can only marry a Christian, you're going to reject proposal. It, for some of you, it will probably, you will probably have to face this in your life at some point, that it seems like your best bet for getting married may be somebody that God says you shouldn't marry. And I mean like somebody that you know that they're not a Christian because the Bible says that that's forbidden. So some people are single because of the cost of following Jesus. And I wonder if, if, we, if, we, can, if we can do that. Um, I read this point for common theological error, so let me jump down here. So how do you glorify God as a single person? First thing is this. Quit thinking of yourself as a single first. If you're a Christian, you are not a single Christian. You're a Christian single. And I really would just want to say you're a Christian. It's not just a semantic difference. It really is which is the noun and which is the modifier, right? That's right. That's English grammar. Yeah. I went to Berkeley College of Music, so <laughs> I was like, ooh, why am I going down that road? Um, now, it, it, really is, it really is true. Your identity, your base identity, is that Jesus loved you before the foundation of the world, sent his son to die in your place, sent the spirit to change your heart, to take away your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh, move you to obey his commands, set his love upon you. At some point in your life, if you're a Christian, God quit taking no for an answer, and he said, today is the day of my power. And he wooed you with his love, Right? And that is what defines who you are and defines everything about you. The fact that you're single, okay, it's, it's, it's relevant at some point, but it's not who you are. Um, Tim Keller, I think, wisely encourages periodic marriage seeking. And he says that this is helpful. In other words, don't all the time, constantly. Now, he's more talking to people who are, you know, out of college, whatnot. I think this is helpful for you to think about. Periodic marriage seeking. In other words, it's not to be your obsession all the time, but neither are you to just to say, well, no, not going to do that. I'm doing, I'm doing all these other things, or I'm just going to not go there. It's too scary, and I hate getting disappointed. Um, it's worth pondering. Uh, I think there are some seasons when you should not be seeking to date somebody or to marry somebody. If you have just come out of great trauma, it is not the time you need to be dating somebody. That's the time when you will build false intimacy it happens all the time. If you've just broken up with somebody and it's been brutal, that is not the time to start dating somebody else right away, right? As much as you may want to. Um, singleness is not just a stage of life when you're waiting to serve God. It's a time to serve God. So the question is, how do you live as a single? You seek joy to find in every station, something still to do or bear. How can I glorify God? Are there particular opportunities that I have to serve God now at this point, in this place? Are there places where God has put me where other people can't get to? I really think that's the way to think about it in terms of where do you have front row seats to see where God's kingdom needs to come? And can you pray for that? And can you dive in right there? And... Um, yeah, I think, I, think that's, I think that's enough for one, for one night. Um, let me pray for us.